This podcast is a collaboration between Costard and Touchstone Productions and the Dads from the Crypt podcast. CCPD, this is Marlboro State Police. Dave, Kurt, are you there? Over. Jack, Jack, we need your assistance. The town's gone crazy. People are being killed. Over. What's all these reports about circus clowns? These clowns aren't people. They're some kind of they're some kind of creatures, things from another planet. Look, Jack, they're killing people. Officer Mooney is dead. I know I saw it. He was killed by one of these things. Could you send all available units immediately, please? Over. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the How Not to Make a Movie podcast. I'm Alan Katz. And I'm Gil Adler. Now, before we get started, as always, we want to remind you to please uh, hit the like button and subscribe. It makes all the difference in the world. There you go. So do it now. And and there are graphics. And here are the graphics. More graphics. Uh, (laughs) But thank you. So subscribe and like. Gil and I had the opportunity uh, a thousand years ago to, to work with the Kyoto brothers. And uh, we, were, we were just talking about the fact that we, for some reason, we didn't. In the, we, in the conversation that you're about to hear, we talk about the project that, that, that they, they pitched to us. And I don't know why we didn't do it. it sounds like uh, a good idea even now. <laughs> yeah, a really cool idea even now. But the Kyotos are an incredible creative uh, three brothers. Well, we'll talk to two of them. They've done a lot of great stuff as, as we will talk about. I, I'm a huge fan of, of their work on the Simpsons. They, they did all the claymation stuff. Uh, their work, uh, Marcel, the shell with shoes on great stuff in Elf, the, uh, all the stop motion elements in the North pole and team America world police. I am such a huge fan of their, of their puppetry, uh, on, on that. But of course, uh, Gil and I were just at the, uh, horror con LA 2023, where, uh, one of the big events was the 35th anniversary of killer clowns from outer space. And the game that MGM is releasing uh, based on Killer Clowns, uh, I had the opportunity to moderate the, uh, the panel that the, the Kyotos did. And it was, a, it was great fun to catch up with them. But the, you know, it was a horror convention. Didn't have the time to really talk. And here we really had the opportunity, which we never had in the past at, at all, to really just talk to the guys. Just the, well, the four of us. Could have been the five of us, but the four of us. And uh what fun. They're very, they're very funny. They're very creative. And uh, I think, Alan, you and I lost an opportunity when we didn't work with them all those years ago. Oh, dear. The one that got away. Yep. Here it is. Our chat started with just one Kyoto, Stephen. are just such cool fans. I'm so, yeah. so surprised that after 35 years, we uh, have such a fan base. So uh, I'm always happy to see whoever shows up. Was, was there ever... Now, with us, what, what, what Gil and I are experiencing with Tales from the Crypt is a resurgence. Yeah. And, you know, there was a long period when I, I can tell you, as someone who was looking for work, <clears throat> Gil was always gainfully employed. And as someone who was looking for work, there was a lot of years when Tales from the Crypt was a fucking anvil around my neck. It's like, that's it? Way? That's it? Oh, oh, that's it? Yeah, oh, well. you know, they, they, they look at me like, like, that was a thousand years ago. <clears throat> Well, I have a similar issue. I usually say Killer Clowns is my first feature film. 
then I say it was my only feature film. Then we've been <laughs> trying to get a, a feature going since uh, for 35 years now. So yeah, yeah, we all have our albatrosses. But uh, but still, uh, you're right about the resurgence. What's interesting yeah. is, at least the people I've talked to, they just really love and embrace the 80s movies. And I think it's because of the traditional hands-on tangible effects. I mean, this is a generation that's grown up on CG their whole entire life. So now they see these 80s movies and say, what's that? Why is that different? And I think they really love it. Um, so I think that's why we're, we're both experiencing a resurgence. I think you know, so. It, I think you're right. You know, we, 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 we've had people come up to us, young people, who said that they saw it as, when they were kids and their parents, you know, would let them sneak into the television room and they would watch it after the parents went to sleep. And, and I'm sitting there looking at them like, you know, they're, they're adults now. <laughs> they're grown up. And and I'm I'm just amazed that they're still interested in wanting to hear more about the show and about what we're doing. Absolutely. And it's a multi-generational, just like ours. I mean, people who loved it in the 80s uh, got married, had kids, showed it to their kids. Their kids have friends. It spreads to them. And now it's like three generations. Yeah. Uh, it's, Everything uh, old gets new again. And, and here we all are. And man, <laughs> hey, fantastic. <laughs> Great. Good. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I wish we had this success when I when I was younger. <laughs> you know, yeah, but you know what? Oh, you would have wasted it. It would have been wasted on you. Now, now you're older and wiser. You, you know what to do with it. I'm older. Talk <laughs> <laughs> about our careers in between time. We've been pitching and pitching and pitching all these years. It's not like we haven't been inactive, and we've come really, really close to some things, and yeah. things just kind of fade away with that. Yeah. Uh, that phenomenon called uh, musical chairs in the creative development departments of every uh, of every studio. Yeah. Uh, but we managed, and I, you know, I think we called up, we called you guys. We were developing something at Nickelodeon. We had like a three show deal there, and we did something we called Squid Zone, which was like the Little Rascals meets Monsters modern day, and it was cool. a team of uh, sci fi geeks. You guys, you know the term squids. That's yeah. what they call it, the convention geeks. Yeah. Um, and it was a bunch of little geeks who were fighting monsters in their hometown. And we were developing it at uh, Nickelodeon. And, you know, Kyoto Brothers, we're like kind of writers, but we're not writer writers, like showrunners. So we were always looking for somebody. And I think Edward might have talked to maybe Gil, I think it was. I don't know. I, I wish Edward was here. Because we did kind of bump into you guys because we were always looking for a kind of like a writing, writing team to work. We we did at one point. I know that our manager, I know we had a meeting with you guys at your at your at your facility. Yeah. And do you remember uh, what it was? I don't remember what it was, but I, it was a long time ago. You yeah. know, the, the thinking was, you know, we we like a mixture of horror and comedy. You like a mixture of horror and comedy. Surely there's some synergy that can be made between this, you know, this guy and this guy, and you, you could have something miraculous. You know, it, 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 it takes time to do that. We, we never had a chance to actually do that. I, you know, nothing ever came. No, of it, no, but... no. It's you and a bunch of other people who we tried to collaborate with. It's just, you know, schedules and interests and what's going on in everybody's lives. It doesn't, doesn't always connect. But you know what? You guys in mind. I, but yes, and I would say, you know what? We all still have time. N none of us are dead yet. <laughs> There you go. Oh, you. We should yeah. we should uh, we should uh, run a, a squid zone by you guys. 
or Squid Squad, I think it was called. And then, oh, was it Black and White, our reality cop show with monsters? This is like way, way back. Yeah, that I remember. Actually, I remember that. I think we that's the one we came to your place. Yeah. To talk about. And I think your place was. Way it's out. like it's like Way right out. near off, on a ramp. The ramp went over to Burbank, yeah, and you you took the the street going down. Yeah, and yeah. you were right on the right side of that of that ramp. Yeah, we're right just almost underneath the ramp of yeah. the five in Burbank. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> so many great ideas have not have not been produced over these years. That was a great one. Remember, with the reality cop show, it was like played absolutely straight. Not right. winking at the camera, no Ghostbusters special equipment. These right. were regular cops meeting up with these like extraordinary things. Yeah. And it was great. Oh, we love the idea. But, I, uh, funny, now that you mention it, it is flooding back to me. And suddenly I, I, I remember, uh, yeah, I remember you guys pitching the idea to us. I, I, oh my God, it's just beginning to th that door behind the door behind the door. Suddenly yeah, do you remember it was a open? Oh yeah, we had a presentation that was like cop files, and we'd we'd open up with the Weekly World News that all this stuff was real, but nobody pays attention to it. And then I had cop files of all these these like werewolf attacks and bug men and things, and we had all the files and evidence and all that. It was, I mean, we went to Comedy Central with um, oh, what was her name? Oh, I'm gonna kick myself. Head of. And uh, we pitched like it was real. I said, look, we came, you know, we were talking to some people down at LAPD and they said they gave us this file. And it's like, these are things that are really happening that nobody knows about. And she was just kind of enthralled. But you know what? What kind of killed it? They wanted to make it a comedy. They wanted to put jokes, like five or six jokes on every page. And we said, no, 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 no. I have to play it straight. I have to play it straight. And uh, so creatively, we didn't see eye to eye. But it's really interesting. About six months later, they came out with that. Um, what's that cop show that was on Comedy Central? Reno oh, 11? yeah. Reno, yeah, 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 yeah. I wish they had done Bright Squad. <laughs> you know, we should have taken you guys up on that. It's funny. You know, looking back at, at uh, the, the, the silly things you do in a career, at one point, uh, Gil and I had a development deal at ABC Productions. And we, it was a, it was anything we wanted to do. And oh. we, you know, we, we are, you know, the thing that everyone knew us for was horror, but we wanted to do a romantic comedy. And no one stopped oh. us. And nobody stopped us. <laughs> oh my God. Oh, uh, well. Stupid. We, we should have taken deal. You do a first one horror, and the second one, <laughs> romance oh now well, he actually, tells me yeah and what was it actually we had a deal with john landis uh, i was working with john on uh, the stupids who we were doing animation effects and he saw we had like our little demo for fright squad on it and uh actually behind our back he kind of sold it to disney because he had a, he had a deal at disney so we were really happy i mean john landis would be really great so we had our initial negotiations and it just didn't just didn't happen Mm. how we were going to do it so uh a lot of missed opportunities uh here we are in la where everybody's doing it and uh so much doesn't get done oh yeah it's amazing that anything does get done you know that's the, the unique the, exception yeah 
the thing that I really like about the podcasting world, it's entirely DIY. And I don't have to rely, we don't have to rely on anybody to put out our, you know, a piece of, of produced work every week. And hey, I, I've, I've got a theory that Napster has come for us all. That Napster first destroyed the music business. And, and what Napster did was it, it destroyed the need for a music store or even a music company because everything could go peer to peer. I could share my entire collection with you and you could share your entire collection with me. And it simply destroyed all the economics that had kept the thing afloat. You know, before Napster, music acts would tour to support their album sales. And then Napster destroyed that. And so now you had to basically just give the music away to support so that hopefully they'd come and see it. They come and see a tour. And buy, and buy T-shirts. That's what they, the, the merch is what kind and, of keeps the road shows going. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, you know, it completely screwed up the economics. At the end of the day, I, I think Napster came for us all. And, and, and I think the, you know, the TV business certainly has felt the effects of that. Streaming is, 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 has a, a kind of a peer-to-peer quality to it in, in, in a strange way. At, at the end of the day, I think the convention business is peer-to-peer. And, and that is our fans' opportunity to come and really, really to, to, to tell us person to person what we've done, you know, how much they've enjoyed our, our work in their lives. And it, it's really, it's, it's how a lot of the future of the business is going to be, is that's going to be, it's going to grow out of that peer to peer relationship. Well, I think so too. And I think what I liked about it was it democratized uh, filmmaking. Everybody now has an iPhone, which has a 2K, 4K quality that we have at our studio. So now everybody, and I think everybody's an artist, everybody can create. Now we're seeing a greater variety of things done by people out there. And Mm. it's it's really exciting. Uh, And and it kind of cuts into all the studio stuff. But it's interesting, the streaming world right now um, is going to be going more towards the traditional broadcast model with commercials and shit. Oh, necessity. Yeah. It has to. The young people aren't going to go for that. They're going to go for the podcast. They're going to go for the homemade entertainment you guys do. And you mentioned conventions. That's going to be your way to get to them publicly. So you'll go on tour at conventions to support the stuff you do on your podcast. So yeah. I think it just puts more power. You don't have to talk to an executive. You don't have any rules or regulations. You do whatever the fuck you want. I think that's great. There are a couple of filmmakers who were beginning to reacquire the rights to their stuff. And rather mm-hmm. than, you know, sell it, having to get pennies from the man, if you want to see their stuff, hey, you just go to their site and, and you know, it's peer to peer. People always talk about like, uh, like killer clowns. Uh, we don't own it. And they go, oh, you guys must have made a bad deal. Well, you know what? There was no other deal. If you, if you wanted to keep any kind of rights, they go to the next guy who was going to give it away. So everybody in Los Angeles, in Hollywood has made that kind of deal. Uh, of course. So, of course. so now... You don't have to. Now you can. A good example would be Marcel Lachelle with shoes on. Uh, Jenny Slade and Dean Fleischer Camp, they did a funny little thing, put it on the internet. It's like a fluke for somebody else's mother just to see what they were kind of doing. And it caught on. 35 million hits. Awesome. Two books and a feature awesome. film and an awesome. Academy Award nomination. Guess what I wear as a hat? What? A lentil. 
One time I nibbled on a piece of cheese and my cholesterol went up to 900. Guess what I used to tie my skis to my car? What? The hair. Guess what my skis are? What? Toenails from a man. So there is the power. If it's good, people will grasp it and you could you can get the home run. Now you don't have to talk about executives and what's right and wrong and all that kind of stuff and get screwed. You own it. Well, they don't own the movie. They had to give it. I think 824 does. But anyway, they made a movie. <laughs> yeah, they they leveraged their content really as big as they possibly could. And, and isn't that the point of the exercise? Well, yeah, well, to, to get it out. I don't know. It's art. I don't know why we do this, but we do it just to kind of do our stuff and, and see how people like it. And, and if they like it, we have a big smile on our face. I remember we had just finished The Amazing Life Sea Monkeys. And, uh, you know, we had to go into some definite uh, de deficit funding. And we said, what's the cheapest show we could do that we could possibly do? And I was a big fan of cops. And I said, let's do cops with monsters. It was the cheapest thing. But I'll tell you that this is before Blair Witch. And everybody we pitched it to said, oh, no, no, the audience won't get it. They won't know if it's real or this or that. No, it can't be not. And nobody would even take a chance. Then the Blair Witch came out. And all of a sudden, Oh, reality. That, what a great concept. That's so far behind. Can't it, sucks it. To be, it sucks to be ahead of the curve. I, I, you know what? I think we were with that one. You, you absolutely were. And that is the worst place to be. The, the guy with the great idea who, who no one sees it yet. And then it's the second guy in line goes, yeah, here's, here's that same idea. They go, you're a genius. And, and finally, yeah. Edward Kyoto really joined us. We took the, the cheapest show to produce, Cops, and then complicated it with a monster of the week. <laughs> <laughs> well, we could have done it, though. I think yeah, we yeah. No, exactly. Oh At that God. time, oh for sure. Oh, there's, <laughs> oh, there's so many places to go. Uh, you guys originally hail from the Bronx. Well, originally, actually, Charlie and I and my sister, Diane, we were in the Bronx, but then our family got too big when we had Edward. So we moved out to Long Island, which was the country back in 1960. So we went to the wilderness. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Go back. Go back. Where in the Bronx? Uh, I guess uh, uh, Gun Hill Road. Uh, oh, yeah. <clears throat> uh, down the street from what? You, do you remember Freedom Land? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I yeah. Do. We were down the block. From <sighs> Freedom Land. And, where, and where in Long Island did you go? Uh, Deer Park in Suffolk County. Sure. Right, right smack That's, in the middle of Deer Park. Uh, but it's pretty Park. nice out there. That's really nice out there. Yeah, it was it was a great place to grow up. There was more there were more trees than houses when we moved there. Right, right. It was great. Did you guys grow up as 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 film buffs? I mean, when when did movie making or, or was it what God, where did it begin? Do you guys was it monster movies first? Do you guys even think of yourselves as as horror movies guys? How do you think of yourselves? <laughs> There's a gap at the this, this uh, sounded like a therapy session. Yeah, it's really what's what's wrong with you? Please start explaining this now. much. Uh, actually, Edward has a different story than I do. Uh, <laughs> it was always with me and Charlie, pretty much. I speak for him. It's been monster movies. I think we saw King Kong, the original King Kong, uh, when we were very, very young. I was like five, maybe, and uh, and and uh, it really left a big mark on us. I mean, me especially, because we had these elevated train tracks right down the block from where we lived. And when I saw King Kong rampaging through New York and rearing, tearing apart the trains, it was really surreal for me. We love dinosaurs, but seeing Kong in, in, in our neighborhood just left a big mark. Sure. So that was it for me. And it was always monsters. And we would see. How, how, old, were, how, how old were you at the time that, that you saw King Kong? About five. 
Very impressionable. 50, 54, and we moved out in 1960, so it was like three, four, five, and maybe somewhere around there. But Edward grew up on Long Island, and he had a different... Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was certainly fascinated by the monsters, caught the monster bug early as well. But like the, probably like my my life-changing incident was my dad took me to see 2001 A Space Odyssey in, in 1968. I don't know what you're talking about, Hal. I know that you and Frank were planning to disconnect me. And I'm afraid that's something I cannot allow to happen. I always loved movies, but that one just was was different. It just impacted me. You know, and at an eight-year-old, I was just kind of overwhelmed by the the sights, the sounds, the overall experience. And it just kind of hit me that movies are just are more than just like little little romps, little fun things. I, I mean, I couldn't, I'm articulating it in a much more sophisticated, not really, way than I did at eight years old, but it definitely impacted me that this was something that fascinated me and I wanted to do more. Mm-hmm. You wanted to, seeing it, you wanted to do it. Do it, yeah. Again, and, and and Charlie and Stephen had been active making their own movies, and then I used to help out with that. I mean, there's an eight-year gap between Char- me and Charlie. Charlie's the oldest. Stephen is uh, two years younger than him. So, you know, different at that age, It's that's light years. Uh, but still, I, you know, I was still still there, active <clears throat> participant, watching and learning. Just that when I went off and, and started doing my own stuff, it was a little more... Um, it was just like a slightly different take, but always uh, fascinated by the, the the effects, the visual effects, especially. Yeah, for us, it was a form of play. We had army men and dinosaurs, and we used to go down in the in the woods and the dirt and make little stories up. And then when we got an eight millimeter camera, yeah. Uh, when when we was started... the first time? That, when was the first time you picked up that eight millimeter camera? How how old were you when if you had that in your hands? I was about ten. I think yeah. the first stop motion I did, I was ten years old. My parents bought it for like homemaking movies, you know, home movies and stuff. Sure. And actually, Charlie, they got it for Christmas. And Charlie went up into the attic where my parents would hide the hide the gifts. And he saw it like a month before we actually got it. So he and I were planning movies. We were saying, oh, let's make a movie. And we had like little rubber animals and army soldiers. And we were going to pull them by strings to animate them. Because we didn't even know what animation was until we, you know, got, got a camera. But so, funny, film, film was a part of our, our existence, even from... When we were born, our grandfather had a 16 millimeter. We would film all the family events, anniversaries, engagement parties, baptisms, weddings, Christmas, Thanksgiving. And whenever the families got together, he would bring out the 16 millimeter movie projector and Mm -hmm. we'd show the home movies. Mm. In fact, actually, we have our Uncle Fritz. Uh, yeah. his 16 millimeter projector, which was the workhorse. That's the one we had. And he was, he was a tinkerer. He would modify it. He had like a rheostat on it. So whenever you touch uncle Fritz's projector, you would get a shock. <laughs> so, yeah. So, I mean, so it was like, again, there was this fascination with that, that technology, the moving pictures, the projector, that something magical about that, that light, that sound. And back in the day when you had to, when it was eight millimeter or super eight millimeter film, and you were cutting it with, you know, with that little machine, the little, the little, the little editing thing and with little pieces of, of, of scotch tape, more or less. It was, it was a painstaking fidgety little process. You were, but you were in touch with it. You and there was something, I don't know, elemental and organic about all of it. You know, the 
in, in the old days of editing, when you you take a grease pencil and you know you'd mark your fade from from one place on on one the part of the run film to the film other. like this. Yeah, 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 yeah. The, the dreaded clean sprocket holes. <laughs> oh yeah, but for us, for me and Charlie, Charlie was a, a, a an illustrator. He would, could always draw. So he would do drawings and stuff, and, and 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 create backgrounds. And I was a sculptor, so I ended up making clay figures and animating. So we kind of complemented each other in different ways to make films. And then we invented techniques called uh, 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 we did forced perspective, and uh, instead of doing, we didn't know anything about movie making, but we kind of, in our own little hobby way, our, our do-it-yourself way, created matte paintings. We didn't paint on glass. We Charlie would paint something on, on a matte board, and then we'd cut out the negative space, and then we'd hold it up in front of the camera. So we'd have these gigantic mushrooms, and we'd walk through a mushroom forest. Mm -hmm. uh, we didn't know that they did it with glass. We didn't, we didn't know so much. And, oh, yeah, it's... Uh, I think you'll find fun. that's the case with a lot of like, especially stop motion animators, you know, mm -hmm. you know, the Jim Danforths, the David Allen's of the world, Doug Beswick's, Jim Pearl. that back when we were growing up, there wasn't Cine Fantastique. There weren't online. Didn't have the Stan Winston school that mm -hmm. showed you all these techniques and stuff. So you would, you would invent it as you went along. You'd, yeah. Maybe you'd see something in uh, famous monsters of oh, film land. Yeah. Uh, a grainy picture that sort of showed Ray animating something on a tabletop with a, you know, a piece of glass, but there was no step-by-step -step revealing of the techniques. So they're all, and we're all tinkerers. We all made it up as we went along. Indeed. Yeah. Indeed. And, uh, and discovered and, and failed. And, and, uh, and it made every time you, you failed and screwed up and, and spent hours Doing something the wrong way. We got it was like a piece of IKEA furniture, wasn't it? And, <laughs> and, and to suddenly go back and recut it the way that it had to be. But the the education therein was fantastic. You 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 learned how to tell a story with this medium in a way that you couldn't learn. It's really hard to learn digitally. Because and it's funny without without any influence of the industry. Uh, well, I raised my arm because um, we grew up on, you know, we were growing up on Long Island when this was happening. And, you know, there, there's a film industry in New York, obviously, but that was like Manhattan. And that was like Martin Scorsese, Woody Allen movies. It was a, a different, different thing. They didn't make, you know, um, Sim Voyage of Sinbad, Jason and the Argonauts uh, movies. out of the New York film markets, you know, it was uh, so there, you know, we didn't have a neighbor that was a grip or a gaffer. Um, so it was totally foreign for us. Oh, yeah. We used to enter film festivals, too, like the Kodak Awards and all these different things. And we would always come in like second or third. Because, honorable mention. Yeah, or honorable mention because <laughs> they were making movies about the ecology or the war, like like in, you know, like high high art. And we were doing like movies. You were like Moses staring at the promised land thinking, how the hell do I get from here to there? Yeah, but we did do an ecology movie called Sludge Grubs. They were giant crabs that came out of garbage. <laughs> so that was our <laughs> ecology movie. Oh, that's fantastic. Uh, now, uh, Stephen, you ended up going to Rochester, the the uh, Rochester Institute of Technology. Yeah, yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah. and uh, you were awarded Best Young Director at the Cannes Film Festival. Yes, that's really funny. I made in my sophomore year. I made a, a little fable about a cricket that couldn't jump, all stop motion with a front projected background, that slide yeah. foliage. And I guess I entered the uh, 
the Golden Eagle Awards, American Golden Eagle, something like that. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know it at the time, but they would then send winners to other countries. So one day I get a letter with this trophy that looked like it was bent. And it said, I won this thing at the Cannes Can Film Festival. And I said, what the hell is that? So it took me like a year to finally figure out that it was really a prestige award. <laughs> I didn't know anything about it. I wasn't. I'm very educated in, in the world. Well, that's it. Part, part of growing up, not really knowing or caring about the business of it all. Yeah, you, know? yeah, yeah, yeah. you probably thought it was a prank that Charlie was pre- putting <laughs> well, it was funny. Usually yeah. a trophy is like a perfect circle. They would have a circle. And this one was kind of bent like that. That's the French <laughs> for you. And I thought, oh, it got destroyed in, in, in the shipping. I, I didn't know what it was. And, and I, then I went to New York when I graduated and people started saying, oh, what's this? I had on my resume. Oh, and they told me what it was. And it uh, kind of, yeah, it is what it is. Uh, do, you, do you feel like Rochester contributed anything to, to what you became? Nope. Oh, <laughs> RIT is a fantastic school yeah. right now. It's grown so much. I wish I was going there now. Huh. I... I think I went to the wrong school. I loved the equipment. I think I felt I could make my movies there with all the equipment they had, but uh, they didn't have a motion picture. They didn't have a motion picture discipline, and they didn't have a degree. So I had to take photograph, photo illustration was what I took, a photography thing. But every class that I had, I was making a film, like the cricket film I made. I would go to the, my art class, and I'd say, "I want to make puppets for my film," and they said, "Okay." My photojournalism class, I'm writing a screenplay for my film. Okay, so I did independent study. So I so I majored in independent study and just made a bunch of movies. That was my education at RIT. Because they didn't have a film major. At that at that point. That's that's unfortunate. It sucks to be ahead of the curve yet again. Yeah, it was talking about 1972 to 76. That's when I went there. But now, oh, state-of-the-art equipment there animation department, CG, computers. It's just a, a really wonderful campus and school. Edward, where did you go? Several places. <laughs> <laughs> I, I started out at SUNY Purchase. Um, through, through high school, I became fascinated with the tech. I was always a bit of a photographer, had my own dark room at home and stuff. But uh, in high school, I uh, really latched onto the theater arts um, department and I was a lighting designer since I was uh, in 10th grade. I was lighting all the senior shows and productions and things. So, um, I, again, I always had this. I always wanted to make movies. But again, my first and foremost thing was making uh, doing lighting for television, uh, for theater stage. So I went to Purchase, which uh, which is, uh, you know, had a state of the art um, theater complex and things. And I went there for a year and then decided that and it, it was me. I was. I was 17 when I went away to college and I wasn't really quite ready for the environment. And uh, it kind of just slapped me in the face that, no, I really, I really wanted to do film. I wanted to make movies. And uh, part of that was um, just the way purchase was set up, like especially freshmen coming in, we were kind of slave labor for the the brand new theater arts complex that he had just made. Um, great people, you know, it would have been a fast track to um, you know, potential lighting designer on Broadway and top-notch productions, but I just just my heart wasn't in it. So uh, I left after a year. It was a great year. I learned I learned a lot actually in that year about my about myself and just things in general. But then I went to uh, SUNY uh, Stony Brook on Long Island mm-hmm. for a year and a half, and um, 
I, I transitioned from uh, from theater into film there. And then I, I, I ultimately went to Hofstra and I got my degree in communications. They had a they had a great little indie film department there. They had theater if I wanted to put my to put my toes back in the water mm-hmm. and a great television department. And uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, that's where I met some, you know, some of my lifelong friends came from 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 Hofstra. Uh, it, so, it was a, that was a great, great experience. So so you ultimately found your place. Yeah. Yeah. It took a, I was on the five year plan. Our, our parents, yeah, they true. didn't they kind of didn't question it. You know, yeah. they they would they would help us out with financial aid and oh, help yeah, us with yeah, yeah. you know we, we we got we all had student loans but charlie went to pratt you know pratt institute Stephen mm-hmm. went to RIT, private universities i went i ultimately went to a private university i think they maybe caught a break with our sister she went to a, a state university for her college career yeah it was interesting by my folks they didn't really understand what we were doing they weren't artists themselves and it oh. was really foreign but they saw maybe they saw our passion uh, what did your folks do? What, 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 what? Well, uh, my father, my father did a bunch of things, but uh, he ended up uh, doing 25 years in the, uh, in the penitentiary. No, no, a post office. He was in the post office. And my mother worked in a couple of, she worked in a bank. So they were pretty much blue collar workers, yeah. but they, they just gave us the film. They gave us a projector. They gave us the time and anything we wanted so we could follow this, this, uh, this dream of what we wanted to do. Which is a wonderful testament to just, just their faith in your nature that, you know, you were going to go off on a route that was absolutely foreign to them. They, they, uh, yeah, you know, hard for them to make back, sense of. I, I looked when we're going to, when we're clearing out the house, I was looking back through some of my dad's stuff when he was younger, he definitely had an artistic side to him. We would look at his like his school notebooks. They were impeccable, the note taking, the diagrams and stuff, added color here and there. So there was a there was a presentation quality in him. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he worked in the shoe line before he worked for the post office. The 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 plant he was working at, they went out of business. Um so then he got, you know, the civil service job. But even there he was like he was a cobbler. He was making shoes. Yeah, you know, yeah. so it's funny, but mm-hmm. in their generation post-depression world war ii you know very very hard for them yeah really really hard for them to to take a leap of faith where where your job where your your work is concerned and and we all took a leap of faith yeah yeah Yeah, we did and they support they supported us they oh yeah 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 i I don't think i don't think till the the day they left us i don't think they really understood what we did for a living but it was really great they did they did visit us at the set of killer clowns when we had a giant tent there and I know my mom was just just tickled pink with you know, with the actors that were there and everything. And I think they did have an opportunity to see that we actually were able to do something pretty big. I think we may have had the same parents. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I had the same thing. They had no idea yeah. what I did for a living. But friends of my parents would say to my dad, "So what what's going on with your son? What what's he doing?" And my dad <laughs> my dad would say eventually he would say, "Well, look." He doesn't ask me for money. I don't think he's doing drugs. <laughs> and he seems to be happy. So he'll grow out of it. Yeah. <laughs> and where did you grow up, Gil? Where, where, Yon- where you- Yonkers. Oh, Yonkers. Yonkers. Yeah. Oh, just right up the block from us. Yeah. Just like the North Bronx, Yonkers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we had relatives. Our our uh our aunt, my godmother, lived on uh on uh, in Yonkers. I try to remember the name. Olinview Avenue was the Bronx. That was grandma's house. I'm telling yeah. you, we had the same parents. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My parents never knew what I did for a living. Never knew. 
I once sat my dad down in, a, in my apartment in New York. And I said, look, here's my diary of what I do. So just pick a page and I'll walk you through everything I do in that day. And then you'll know. I said, oh, that's a good idea. So we started going, look, I get up very early because I have some investors in Europe. I, so I talked to them first. So I got to get up early because it's six hours later in, in Switzerland. And then I do this. Yeah, yeah. And then I do this. And then I have lunch with this writer. And then I talk about that. And I I try to get this over with to Joe Papp. And I want to meet Bernie Gersten. About, and yeah, yeah. And I go through the whole day. And I and after I'm exhausted explaining this to him, I go, so so now you get it? You know what you understand? He goes, yeah, yeah. So uh, what do you do for a living? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what do you do for a living? <laughs> yeah, it My, was Laurel Place. Laurel Place. Laurel Place, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. My my dad, my parents visited the set of Tales from the Crypt. In fact, my dad was Tales from the Crypt's uh, medical consultant. Whenever I you know, we needed to do a, an effect that was especially ooky, I, I'd call him up and say, all right, if I did, if we did this to the human body or what would be a really disgusting disease that would look like, and, and my dad would fill in those <laughs> lovely blanks. You know, uh, some of my fondest memories were sitting with Todd Masters, our special effects guru, just with a, a, a with pathology, book. with a pathology textbook. Oh yeah. You, uh, you know, looking at, you know, oh, that's really disgusting. Let's try to recreate that. My, my dad, in fact, in, in one of the Crypt Keeper segments, the Crypt Keeper, you know, operating or doing something to my father. My my father saw every aspect of what I did for a living. In fact, uh, one day on the set, uh, our first assistant director, Lee Webb, gave my dad the job of he was uh, the remote uh, remote queue on a doorway. And so, you know, oh, my that's dad, great. That's really nice. He share. saw he saw every facet of what I do for a living. And he still couldn't. He still if, when people when his friends would ask him, he got I'm not yeah. quite sure what Alan does, though. Oh, yeah. He saw what everyone else did on the set. He had no idea what I did. Well, after he had that experience, he came to me and he actually wanted to replace Alan. <laughs> and there were some serious conversations. <laughs> yeah, our, our mom would get a kick out of visiting the set, like on Clowns. She came, they came for the last week of shooting. And that's the, the week uh, Royal Dano was on set with us. So that's, you know, that was a, a name from their era. So they got to hang with him and, she loved going down to the unsee monkeys and she got to meet Howie Mandel, you know, so she liked, she liked that aspect of it. She understood that the, the celebrity. I, I'm telling you, we had the same mother. <laughs> my, my mom, we, we were making Bordello of Blood and Whoopi Goldberg, who was a friend said she had wanted to be in the movie. And so Alan and I wrote a scene where we put Whoopi in the, in, into the scene. And so Whoopi's there. My mother's outside <clears throat> next to me near the monitor and she's looking at the monitor and she's going, well, what am I looking at? I said, inside, see that wall on the other side of that wall is a set. And you're looking in there. And it goes, what, what's that black girl doing there? And I said, she's, <laughs> she's, she's in the show. She's in the show. I know her. I know her. I, that, that's, uh, that's, that, uh, that's that funny woman. And I said, <laughs> yeah, Whoopi Goldberg. She said, yeah, Whoopi Goldberg. What is she doing here? <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Yeah. No. Never quite understood, you know, she was a friend of ours and she was doing us a favor. Yeah. <laughs> when, so when did you ultimately, I mean, did you come out to L.A. one by one, dribs and drabs, or was it a collective assault on the town? Uh, actually, it's probably me as the pioneer going through things. I, when I graduated, I went to 
back to Long Island. I was working in Manhattan for a little while, but I hated commercials. I had always told stories. And the last thing I wanted to do was animate little objects on a commercial. So a good friend of mine, Chris Roth, editor on Killer Clowns and uh, Leprechaun, so many so many good, cool hmm. movies. He just he passed away. In- he, he just yeah, passed he away, didn't he? Away. Sorry, yeah, sorry to hear that. Anyway. Yeah, great, great guy. And and he knew me and my work. We worked together at RIT. He was in Washington, D.C., and he found a company called Stomar Enterprises that was doing clay animation. And I, he said, I should come down there. So I went down to interview, and I got the job like that. It was exactly what I've done pretty much all my life up to then. And we, I worked there for about four years, and uh, we made um, uh, the first clay animation feature film called I Go Pogo, based on Walt Kelly's Pogo comic strip hmm. back in the 60s and 70s. And uh, after that, there was not much going on. So, I, I, oh, yeah, and I got Charlie to come down. I was down there with a bunch of people who had not really made movies before. Uh, not that I made movies, but doing animation and stuff. And we're doing a feature. They needed a production designer. And Charlie was working at ABC News in Manhattan. He had a really great job, a union job working on the news. And I said, Charlie, why don't you come down here? Let's make this movie. So he quit that, came down to Washington. So he and Charlie and I were kind of spearheading the creative on this uh, on this feature. And when that mom, ended. Mom understood that. She did not want him to quit. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> oh, I'll, I'll bet that was a loud argument. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't there for that. Am I frozen, guys? No, no, you're no. good. Okay, because my image here is. Well, anyway, oh, yeah. to long story short, uh, right. Charlie went down to D.C. And again, Chris Roth was working down there. He went to California. And uh, when Pogo stopped, there was nothing much else to do there. So we decided to go to California. And uh, so Charlie and I went there in 1980. And, uh, and then we started working for a company called Magic Lantern, Tony Dublin, uh, and some guys, they were doing the Jews in Space sequence in Mel Brooks' A History of the World. <laughs> I got it. Charlie and I got a job there. And we started working as Charlie was a designer, a 2D guy, and a painter of prosthetics and stuff. And I was a sculptor and an animator. So we were getting a couple of jobs in L.A. And all of a sudden, people started liking our work. And we kind of branched off and started Kyoto Brothers Productions as an effects company with with the idea of making films. We were always writing and creating stories and stuff and we were trying to get something going and then edward joined us while we were on set for albert p and sword in the sorcerer uh we yeah, made the yeah. crypt of heads and edward came from the airport went to bronson caves and <laughs> was immediately thrust into the cave to puppeteer this giant crypt of heads it's august 25th 1981 wow my 21st birthday yeah and uh, just through word of mouth, we never really advertised, but we had a style. I don't know how to describe it, but it was something about even the most <laughs> realistic thing we did always had a character bent to it that seemed to be. Um, uh, I, yeah, there, yeah, there's there, there's a flavor of whimsy. I don't know what it is. It's really quick. It's really funny, really quick. Uh, we. A little promo for our company, a little punk rock dinosaur with spray can spray painting our name on bricks, and we won some kind of festival award. And then somebody was looking for dinosaur documentary footage, and Bill Stout said, "Oh, go to the Kyoto Brothers. They got this dinosaur footage." And we met this guy Richard Jones, who worked at ABC local, and uh, 
And then he said, you know what? I know these guys at ABC, they have extra money for specials. You guys have an idea? And we came up with an idea to do a half hour special, after school special for KBC. I directed it, it was live action and animation called Cousin Kevin, about a young boy who has a vivid imagination derived from all the books he's read. And whenever he thinks becomes real and he subjects his older cousin to this um, nightmare adventure as they're camping out in their backyard. Uh, it was great. And then what was it? We worked for Fairy Tale Theater, Shelley Duvall's Fairy Tale Theater. Hello, I'm Shelley Duvall. Welcome to Fairy Tale Theater. Yeah, yeah, that was a cool show. We were doing all the special props, and Fred Fuchs, the producer, said, Oh, I know some guys who have uh, some money for some films. It was direct to video days with Blockbuster and all that. Hmm. And uh, we said, Yeah, we have an idea. Killer class out of space. So we went there and we pitched it in the room with a maquette that I made of a. Uh, a clown with a puppet holding a ray gun. And Charlie did a poster. We had a treatment and we sold it in the room. Killer clowns from outer space. Wow. Awesome. Awesome. I mean, how, how can you not sell that in the room? This is easy, we thought. This is easy. Yeah, we could do this. We sold it. How easy to make a movie. We got the only thing we learned, though, the only thing more difficult about selling your first movie is selling, trying to sell a second one after the first one didn't make any money at the box office. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> Damn. Yeah, some things take time to find their audience. Yeah, we're still we're still out there though. We haven't made that second feature yet. But you know, we've done everything else. You know, we ha we've had a TV show, we've had a uh, a streaming uh special, we've done yeah, you know, it's you know, blessed actually. You've actually you you've you've ended up while you're waiting to do your second movie, you you've you guys have done work on some amazing projects. And there's one that I just want to, well, well, we'll come to that one first. First of all, Marcel, the shell with shoes on. Wow. Yeah, just just to, to be involved with that project. Wow. It is so funny. Guess what I use as a beanbag chair? A raisin. Guess what I do for adventure? I hang glide on a Dorito. Guess what I use as a pen? What? I use the, a pen, but it takes the whole family. Well, thank you. Yeah, that's that's the one that's uh, I, I got to say, it's if it's not at the top of the list, it's really close to it in terms of like career fulfillment. Um, there's a special, special project. We worked on it for seven years. It, it's you know? it's utterly magical in, in how captivating that little character is. <laughs> and that's really a testament to uh, the director, creator, Dean Fleischer Camp and Jenny Slate. They just hit upon something that had this incredible heart, you know, in their original shorts and then two books. And Dean was just, um, I don't want to say relentless because it was, but it was just this. Passionate. Yeah. Passionate. Yeah. Better word. Um, so just on maintaining the authenticity of it, uh, keep this character wholesome and true to their vision. And they she, had partners, partners she, she, in reach. She, she performs the voice. Yeah, uh, Jenny Slate's the voice of Marcel. Jenny Slate, yeah, she's wonderful. That's yeah. It would be so easy to 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 miss that and 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 to hit that annoying note instead. And <laughs> there's just something captivating and lovely. And well, the, their process, um, you know, they worked with a, a writer friend of theirs, Nick Paley, uh, and they would come up with basic little premise and then they would just go and dean would act as interviewer and just ask jenny 
you know, Marcel these questions and it was stream of consciousness. Then they'd go away, they'd work it out and then figure out what the next through line is. And they came back. Then they brought Isabella Rossellini in to play Nana Connie and Cinereach, the New York based company that financed it. Just let them go. We were supposed to, it was supposed to be a year project. It's funny. It was never a big budget movie. Um, so funny, our, our fee, when we I put together the budget and schedule and stuff like that, I thought we could do it in a year, maybe a year and a half if the creative took a little longer. And all right, the fee was okay. It was like, oh, this is not, it's not a bad fee for a year's worth of work, a year and a half. But that turned out to be the fee for seven years. <laughs> so and, but at a certain point, it became a, a, a truly a passion project that we're in this, we're in this because we love this. And uh, Cinery just let them go. It took them a year to do that audio play portion. Then it took them another year to do the animatic component of it. And wow. then our animation director, Kirsten Lepore, who's phenomenal, she went and had a baby. And then we were doing Alien Christmas for Netflix at the same time. So then we went and we did, we made the movie three times, the animatic, we shot a live action version of it. And then we went back and redid the movie, putting Marcel in it all. Uh, and like I said, it's really a testament to Dean and Jenny and Elizabeth Holm, Liz Holm. She was the producer that went to them with the notion that this had feature potential. And, uh, you know, she was the one that kind of put it all together, brought all, brought all the pieces together. The the claymation sequences you, you've done on The Simpsons over the years <laughs> are just fucking wonderful. What you making there, Gravy? It's a pipe bomb, Jabriath. For to blow up Planned Parenthood. I don't know, Gravy. I'm sick of your lack of faith. Hmm? Uh? What Gravy? Yay! Wonder wonderful. Oh, uh, yeah. Every That's time, so you, yeah. Every time you you do one of the uh, the, the Gumby things. <laughs> Just do, doing the that that uh, cloaky. Animation. Yeah, that, that that was it. Whenever they would do a parody of, let's say, uh, Rankin and Bass holiday special or uh, Art Cloakies stuff, anything like yeah. that, would come to us, and we would do a Simpsonized version yeah, of. Yeah, our, yeah, did yeah. A, a Wallace and Gromit parody called Willis and Crumble. Fantastic. And even so Nick Mark funny. said he thought it was good. So I, I was really happy with that. Yeah, it, it's just it's fun working with them because they they love animation. They love to stretch their legs. You know, so whenever they go off model, they give us a call. And we even got to do uh, live action puppets with them and got to sh shoot Katy Perry. Someone totally needs a hug. That's a great that's a great sequence. That that whole sequence where, where she comes in at the end. Yes, yeah. that she she's the girlfriend. Uh she's yeah. uh 
Mo's uh, girlfriend. Mo's girlfriend for the weekend. And that was yeah. the first, that was the only live action clip in these 25 plus years of, of The Simpsons. You also did Team America. You did a lot of work on Team America. And that is hilarious. Terrorize this. Dude, that is one of the funniest movies ever. Just screaming, screaming out loud funny movie. Impossible movie. Impossible. Yeah. Making a uh, an Armageddon type action disaster movie with marionettes. And that's once the again, funniest thing. The funniest thing about it, really yeah. and truly, is puppets. Once again, a, a testament to the creators, uh, Matt and Trey. Um, just incredible, incredible talent. Um, Trey, in particular, just like um, he's just brilliant. And it's funny they uh, we uh, the story we didn't start that movie. They started with another company. And um, they did a uh, they did a little test, like a two week shoot, and it didn't go well. The other company built beautiful puppets. They're actually they're, they're friends of ours, beautiful puppets. But when it came to the logistics of production, mounting that production, it just it wasn't their strength. It wasn't wasn't, wasn't what they did. So mm -hmm. they came to us because not only do we do effects, but we knew how to run a production. We knew how to work. They knew we would be sympathetic for production because we had done our own productions. You were filmmakers um, in yeah, addition exactly. to being puppeteers. And that makes that makes a huge difference. You know how to think with that hat on. Yeah. So they gave us the script and we read the script and it was fucking insane. The Like the climax of the movie was on the Golden Gate Bridge in the, with the Chinese army on one side, <laughs> the Korean army on the other side, a school bus full of Children. children on the bridge during an earthquake <laughs> and um i said okay this is fun this is gonna be really hard i said let let us let us do an inventory of the puppets let's see how much you guys built and let's talk about the budget and so we went down there again beautiful beautiful technology beautiful puppets and um my assessment one was they had done 30% of the work, but it spent 70% of the budget. And uh, so we and, said, uh, no, we the said good folks no. at Paramount wanted us to do it for the remaining money. We said, we said, no, it can't be done. Thank you. Good luck. We walked away. And then, and then they came back and they upped the budget. And we said, still not enough. The, you know, the, the things they're talking about are really expensive. Or whether they're going to do a rewrite, they're going to change it. They're going to pull it back. And when we said smaller nah, bridge, yeah, we just can't. Yeah, let's yeah, let's do the something else. Uh, so and so we walked away again, and then uh, that was funny. Then the the head of production, um, Mark, Mark uh, Boxy, Ralph Boxy's son, um, called us and said, "Look, um, I can't guarantee you more work, um, but I'm asking a, as a personal favor to me." do this movie we'll, we'll work on your money work on your fees and he says but i can't i can't even guarantee i'm not going to guarantee you oh this is going to be open up these all these doors and you're going to get get all this work but he said what i will guarantee is that we're going to we're going to respect you we're going to listen to you and i'm going to make sure everybody on the lot knows what you did and uh with that it's kind of hard to say no mm. and we, we we came up with a, a suitable budget stuff and we 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 took on the job and it was nine and a half months of nonstop. The hardest 
hardest we ever worked, even on our own production. The team doing this movie is unbelievable. I mean, between the Kyoto brothers and I mean, every every single side of it. It's mind boggling how many puppets are working sometimes at one time. I've seen some of the backstage, how you did it. And it's just just to, to, to build the, the the framework around the set so you could work and, and have you know, be able to, to, to work with, with, with three lines was was an undertaking. Oh, absolutely. It was like mounting an army for every shot. Now you have a live action crew who's used to doing maybe maybe 30 setups a day yeah. and doing one or two uh, because it just took so long to get this army of puppeteers on this gantry that was 15 feet tall, wiring all the puppets 15 feet, getting the monitors in place, all the headphones and everything. It's like a bunch of cats in a, in a, in a, in a basket. And yeah. we were going so slow. And then we started to have two, three, how many units? Five, five, five at the end of the thing. And by the end of the shoot, funny, Bill Pope, when he would knock out the New York Times crossword puppet puzzle before lunch, <laughs> because we were so slow. <laughs> and then we were shooting at a warehouse in Culver City. And then we shot on the Fox lot. So with two separate units on, on, on two separate lots, it was the most challenging thing I've ever worked on. It was really, really tough and grueling. But I think what really got us the job, too, was um, the performance. What Matt and Trey wanted, they didn't want these perfectly human performances that I think the first team of puppeteers was going to be giving. They wanted the puppets to be like puppets with all of the inabilities kind of built in because that's where the humor came from. You had this kick-ass team of, of professionals, and when they bump into something, they go like this, and they bounce around and fight like this. It's that hilarious. Humor. It's hilarious. That is so funny. We had, we, some, we had some purists that were insulted by that, thought they were making fun of the, the technique. Well, yeah, they were, but this is the, you know, oh, chill. God. This is the best job you've ever had. <laughs> you know, the most days on the, the movie sex you've ever scene, had. The sex scene is brilliant. I mean, yeah. it, it is hilarious that they had to cut it to get a rating, to, to, to get the rating. They had to cut. It's puppets, you idiots. It's puppets. Yeah. But they did that on purpose, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But, but, no, no, but, no, I'll tell you, they put those scenes in there so the censors would go, oh, take that out. So they would, well, of course the they movie. did. Of course they did. But and so they would then, look over with some other stuff. <laughs> yeah, but then they had two releases they had the R version and the X rated version. So those guys, those oh, it's, but it's genius. And it, it's uh, a, a, funny, a funny, a funny story. I'll see if I can stunningly tell funny, stunningly funny, stunningly funny. The original, the original team, they had done um, the first sequence they did was uh, Spotswood and Gary in the dressing wood, a dressing room, and um, uh, the stories I heard that was just a, a nightmare. There was one particular puppeteer uh, on the older side, brilliant marionettist, known for his his puppets and stuff, brilliant, top notch, <laughs> but he was yelling down from the bridge, the puppet bridge, at uh, Trey. You can't do that. Puppets don't do that. It's impossible. And uh, that's one of the reasons that they didn't want to work with this company. And uh, so it's funny when we were starting to go to three, four, and then five units, we needed, we we're in desperate need of quality puppeteers. Marion, the puppeteers, they're abundant in this town, really great ones. Marionettes, not so much. So we were desperate to get people. So I went, I, I got this guy's audition. I cut it back together and I went to Ann Garofino, the producer, their, their producer. And I said, Ann, we're really hurt and we need puppeteers. Yeah, take a look at his reel. Take a look at his work because I'd really like to bring him on. And Ann just pushed the tape back and said, if Trey ever sees him again, he will kill him. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> and yeah, he, he, he said it. the wrong th- he said the wrong thing he, he yeah, really yeah, yeah. He, as, as desperate as we were we could not bring this gentleman back you yeah, know it, right alan we did have i had i was kind of coordinating the puppeteers and we had 80 puppeteers under the stands during the rent musical and the same thing in the big uh, uh kim jong-un's uh festival at the end crammed together with like we had some rod puppets and marionettes all mixed in but it was just so that's why they don't make marionette movies. You won't find very many. And we learned why. Yeah, truly. I, and ama- I, was anyone taking video of the choreography of, of all of you working together? Because that must have been remarkable. Just how there, you all... There's some, some good behind the scenes stuff. Uh, and we have some stuff that is not on that EPK, not on the DVD stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, just for, for reference, we made we made approximately 60 puppets that we turned into over well over 200 characters in that movie. It was uh, we had our basic crew of like anywhere from 12 to 15 people, 18 people a day working the day shift. And then we had a, like a five or six person night crew that would come in and repair and prep the puppets for the next day. So that's just a puppet crew. That's not the puppeteers. Yeah. And then and then we had, um, you know, because we were the puppets, it was they mounted it like a regular production. So typically, like when you do a special effect, you're responsible for everything of that character. You you do the wardrobe, you deal with the props and stuff. They didn't do that on this. We were just responsible for the puppets and their performance. So we had a separate costume design costume department, a separate prop department. And there was a whole miniature crew building the whole thing. So it's funny, but because we were doing the puppets. And everything revolved around them. We had to wait for every other department to get their shit together and get it on the puppet. So we were always the last ones holding the bag. So we were always the responsible party. Why we're late? Why are we behind? Why? Was, was, why why well, are we ready? Yeah. Well, the, you know, wardrobe. What's wrong with you? Yeah, wardrobe took an hour to dress this puppet. You know, or props there. The 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 rig that's shooting the guns wasn't quite ready yet. So we can never. You know, we were always the last guys. In the in the chain, and there you are pointing the fingers at everybody else. Yeah, it's funny on the very on the very very first day of shooting, we had done we had done a test shoot of the face off sequence where they put they make Bet Gary up, and we learned a lot from that. And we and then we went away, we adjusted the inventory of how we we're going to do the puppets and stuff. But then the first day we were on was shooting, and we all show up and. None of us were ready. We weren't ready. Props wasn't ready. Wardrobe wasn't ready. Art department wasn't ready. And no one, everyone was afraid to go to production and tell them that they weren't ready. We needed more time. And just when it came time to like the shoot call, we blew the generator for the building. And the power went out. <laughs> I think it, it was took- my mother. I think my yeah. mother, Evan. It she took, said, it took a half, help the boys out. It took a half day for them to bring a plant in and get it hooked up. And by the time they got it up, they got it in. We had all caught up. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. <laughs> Gil, Gil and I can can have told horror stories on our podcast about waiting for special effects guys to uh to have their shit ready. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah. But at the end of the day, you know, it's the work is great, and and uh, you you make us look look great. So uh, we're, you we're, know, inevitably, a, we're indebted to you. 
Yeah, the, the reality is very almost all the time we're working with prototypes, something that we threw together in the shop in a six, eight week period. And yeah, it kind of works in the shop, but you don't really know. You don't have the time to dismantle it and then rebuild it for a functioning mm -hmm. thing. You know, only on rare occasions, you know, like the Rick Bakers, the Stan Winstons of the world got mm -hmm. that luxury. Yeah, uh, they have six months for, to develop it. And then they that's their prototype. Then they build the, the, yeah, the hero. real deal. So sure. uh, we're figuring out. And then so much. And then if the, unless there's a principle in our effects shot, we're always relegated to last shot on a Friday night. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I do want to do a shout out to Norman Tempia and Dave Nelson. They were the designers of the original puppets that we kind of took over production. Norman worked with us as a puppeteer mm -hmm. and a fabricator all through the production. Extremely talented guys. But I yeah. think it was just the performers that they were working with that was what got Matt and Trey a little uh, under. Yeah, the, the, their, their work was spectacular. And, and Norman was a, a friend. We had worked with him quite a bit before. So when the production asked, would we consider having him on as a, a puppet supervisor? We said, absolutely. We could we could definitely work with him. Uh, it was necessary because he knew the ins and outs in the construction. And he's really talented. So it was always a joy to work with Norman. He wasn't the puppeteer on the bridge. <laughs> Where did the killer clowns idea come from? Uh, well, I guess that was me. I was playing around with what is the most frightening thing I could imagine? What would scare the hell out of me? And I just started thinking, what could that be? And I thought, well, if I was driving down a lonely mountain road in the middle of the night and I see a car passing me and as it passes me, I look to see who's driving and a clown goes, <clears throat> and it's a clown. A clown being where it shouldn't be is frightening. In fact, it was Lon Chaney had that quote, there's nothing more frightening than a yeah. clown after midnight. Yeah. And I think I tapped into that just unconsciously. And that then we spun it into killer clowns from outer space. You're just adding more fanciful elements. What if the clown wasn't in a car? What if it was just floating out there? Well, that would make him otherworldly from outer space. Well, they're from outer space. What are they doing here? Well, they were here to kill us, of course. And uh it's a great title. <laughs> oh gosh, yes. I mean, and and adding from outer space, that's how we know it's not a slasher movie. Well, that's it exactly, Alan. Uh, in fact, when they first tried to sell the film at, at Film Mart, they called it Killer Clowns. And we said, no, 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 no. I mean, if, you, if you're disappointed with the film, you just got to look at the title. It's exactly <laughs> what did you expect. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, you know, it's, it's a strange thing. I know the clowns have names because you talk about them. But in the movie, they don't actually have names. There's not a, 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 a Groucho, a Chico, a, a Harpo, a Gummo clown. There's... There's the uh, the big one, the big clown at the end. Clownzilla. Yeah. We, we, yeah, for reference purposes only, we needed to have call them something so we could differentiate them and get the you know when we wanted something out on set or we so we could track them from a continuity standpoint. But yeah, they never they were never intended <clears throat> to have names in the in the real world. And it's funny, and some of the names kind of trickled through, but for the most part. They're all why? fan applications. Why, why, why did you not give them names? Because in the context of the story, they weren't characters that needed names. They were this 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 uh, alien race of pulpy white slugs with with markings that made them look like clowns. They were things. They weren't really characters. But again, this is the Kyoto brother thing. I don't know what, but they b became characters like sh uh, Shorty. We called them Tiny in in during the shoot. I mean, 
that's the fan favorite. Everybody loves Tiny and they call him Shorty. Well, we didn't want to fight the fans when they wanted to do the Funko Pops. We said, go with what the fans call them because they'd hate us if we changed it. Uh, yeah, but I love like, that character because he was like, and it's not like the names we called them on set were like innovative and like thing, you know, tiny, fatso, chubby, bubbles, <laughs> bubbles, uh, slim, killer, stretch, ozob. Ozob was uh, bozo spelled backwards. I mean, <laughs> w- would you say that their personalities evolved over time? Yes, from the movie, I think people kind of get a different sense, like a shorty. The fact that he was picked on by that bully. I mean, they love him because they feel sorry for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, killer is the one. Is it Jumbo or Killer that, that gets mooned? Killer. We called Killer and the fans call him Jumbo. That's the one that threatened, you know, taunted the little girl outside the Big Top Burger and the one that kills Officer Mooney. Uh, yeah, not much thought went into. We just called him something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hey, I just, I just found out, you know, when... uh. You know, we, the clown we called Ozob, we, we actually did kind of call him Bozo on set. But funny, Fangoria came by and did an article about the making of the movie. And they took a picture of it and they captioned it. Oh, this this uh, cozy fellow is uh, nicknamed Bozo. And Larry Harmon oh, saw it and threatened uh, th- Transworld with trademark infringement. Rightfully so, I guess. Well, for a clown, he had no sense of humor. Yeah, no, exactly. Well, no, Larry Harmon, if you ever dealt with the, uh, <laughs> no, I've heard he had it was no all about the money. Humor. So uh, yeah. they had a they had to pay a, like a go away fee, and uh, yeah, mm. I, I just found out David Arquette has bought uh, Bozo the Clown trademark from Larry Harmon Corp. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. That's I just saw that the other nice day. Guy. It was closed. They closed the deal at uh, at uh, New York Comic Con. Yeah, he likes puppets. He's a cool guy. Yeah, so that that that's interesting. So. Um, maybe a, new, a new life for Bozo the Clown. That's uh, I don't know whether I like that or I don't like that. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't yeah. get clowns. <laughs> well, it's funny. He's gonna have. I think he's gonna have resistance. Uh, you know. I think there's this. Uh, I I think we've got this from other people. It's not a thesis that I necessarily came up with. That you know, there was always kind of a. People are always kind of uncomfortable clowns, or not everybody, but a, a segment of the population has a little unnerved, uncomfortable by them. Um, but our movie has brought that out in a public way that it's now it's cool to be admit you're afraid of clowns. And people do not look at clowns the same way since our movie. I mean, you had Pennywise, but still, the Pennywise is a, a different thing. It's a shapeshifter, you know, it's a different, <laughs> different vibe where now people. Uh, don't look at trust clowns as like they used to. Uh, so yeah, I mean, so he might be having a little, a little battle unless he turns him malevolent. How I mean, do we how, how do we make a a a uh, killer clowns from outer space to finally happen? I mean, do you what what does it you would think with with the resurgence with we need some hot shit writers that have done in a, a real renowned in the horror business yeah. know any well, I'll tell <laughs> i you wish what i did i'll tell you what it is i think it's uh it's always been kind of perceived as a cult film and studios without box office to back it up won't finance something that was let's say a box office nothing mm. uh but now it's interesting 
I think because of social media, it re- has this resurgence because of the items and the merchandise, I think, is driving it. You've got Funko, Spirit Halloween, you got the album, you got a video game coming out. And I think the fans' interest, if they continue to, to uh, enjoy and purchase all this merchandise, it's going to show the powers that be that this is not a cult film. It's a pop culture phenomenon that they could then start to mine other things. So we think with the success of all of this merchandise, it's going to give us probably the the leg up for the first time ever that there could be something going on. You, you, remember, I, you, you remember I said that Napster came for everybody? Well, that's yeah. kind of, it's that's the Napster effect because literally it is the ability of fans. You know, when, when you cast a movie now and you got to choose between two actors, you'll choose the actor with the better social media following. Yeah, yeah. Because, yeah. Right, because they're going to bring more eyeballs to the project. Yeah. So we're hoping the video game will be kind of that, that kind of that real world barometer of what it's uh it's reaches and popularity you know if it does if it does well like we think it's going to then i think we maybe we open up some eyes mm-hmm. do you do you have a script ready have, have you you know do you have if, if someone suddenly if, if an executive suddenly had that flash of genius and suddenly went well you know we don't need to spend a fortune on this but we could make you know a, a, a killer clowns too for, hmm, for that number there and and probably make a ton. No, we, we do. We do. We do have a script. We've been developing something all along, but we decided that we don't want to do a single theatrical movie. Um, you put all this effort into into a film. You have one weekend to prove its box office, and you don't know what you're up against. So all of that could just go down the tubes, and it ends up going on cable anyway. Yeah, we yeah. are present, proposing a um, a trilogy in four parts that. Is and we've got one of the first scripts going, and uh, it's a, it's an incredible arc, and we want to go to uh, cable streaming. We want to have like an eight to ten part miniseries that we could really follow characters, a longer arc, and really open up the world of clowns, that whole universe. Um, because if we are merchandising it, we need to start feeding with new ideas, new characters, new new weaponry, new gizmos. And I think a feature film won't do it, but I do think keeping it on cable forever is going to launch what I think they feel is going to be the big money maker, which is merchandising. Yeah. Oh, I, you know, considering uh, how the world is a streaming series, you know, paid for by subscription or ad dollars is neither here nor there, but, but it, it, this is a great, this is great content for us for a streaming environment. It's, you could go so many places in the audience, you know, these days, yeah, you, you'd want to explore all the different ways the story could go. And, and you can't, who's got the time in a feature and, yeah, and, and the risk. And, dem- and, and demographics, it, it could be promoted on a, on a specific streamer that caters to that genre. You know, it's, mm-hmm. a, it's so much more, you know, deep compartmentalized these days in terms of um, what's available. Yeah, we, and, it, we, it, it, and it's going to be a, a bigger budget. Over the long haul, but I think that's money well spent. Instead of spending, let's say, the equivalent of the budget on marketing and promoting it for one week, I think to put that money into a longer arc, so it's going to be on TV longer, I think it's better value. So this is what we're trying to sell. Yeah, better storytelling too. Way better storytelling. Yeah, and and it's there's a whole world that an audience would love, I think really have a, would love to explore. Yeah, and, and I think young audiences, uh, they don't go to the theater that much. They they watch it on cable or, or on, on TV. On so. their phone. They want it on their phone, yeah. man. Yeah, yeah so, I mean, really, truly, it's... Well, 
We're hopeful. Ho- hopeful. Hopefully there is there is some clever person who wears a suit to work every day who who was going to hear this and claim the stroke of genius was theirs. Take it, please. Claim Take the it. stroke of genius. Be a genius. For the for the first time, we're finally working with MGM consumer products. We have a, a, an arrangement with them where we consult and we're contributing you know, to the consumer products thing. And it, it, it's vast. It's it's you know everything you can think about publishing down to the widgets um, um, and live entertainment like Halloween Horror Nights and live theater, escape rooms, all these potential things that we're talking about. It's really exciting and they're exciting and they keep asking us what's next on the creative side, you know, because the more stuff that we they get on the creative side, the more opportunities they have to mine. Yeah. licensing opportunities mm. there's so, there's so much potential it it <laughs> wow it's mind-blowing yeah. well guys I, I we cannot thank you enough for, for for spending time with us today hey since since charlie didn't make it you, you want to talk behind his back for a few <laughs> I, I i wonder what he's doing yeah, yeah. <laughs> well he's the eldest one maybe he's taking a nap yeah maybe. i think so i, I, I mean to- I need to having an opportunity to talk to you guys. I mean, come on. I I, I want to thank you guys. You guys are classic O'Hara guys and really appreciate the the time and effort you put into even talking to us. Thank you so much. Oh, no, 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 no. Really, truly, we 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 missed an opportunity a thousand years ago and I'm still kicking myself. Yeah, it's long overdue. I mean, it's amazing that we haven't spoken to you guys in so long and it's like. Has it really been that long? And it has. I I, I talked to Mitch Mitch Stein. He's still uh, he still reps us and he says, oh, he said he said hello the next time I talk to you guys. So yeah, I'll say hi back. Wow, yeah, yeah. he's 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 still working and yeah, 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 yeah. Wow. Well, I'm I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that we should continue talking. The four of us that uh, we ain't dead. <laughs> yeah, and well, we're cool. still here. We're still here creating shit, and and we we have uh, very similar sensibilities. Well, we'll throw some stuff at you guys, and you guys can throw some stuff at us, and we'll see what yeah, happens. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, and, then, and then we'll all throw it at Charlie. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> we'll throw it at Mitch. Mitch Ellis. Yeah, right. right. That's his job. He's the person to throw it. And indeed, yeah, yeah. thank you again, guys. And uh, oh, thank, thank you. you. Thank so you, everyone. Seeing for you. Tu- yeah, well, uh, thank you for tuning in. We'll see you all next time. The How Not to Make a Movie podcast is executive produced by me, Alan Katz, by Gil Adler, and by Jason Stein. Our artwork was done by the amazing Jody Webster, and Jason Jody, along with Mando, are all the hosts of the fun and informative Dads from the Crypt podcast. Follow them for what my old pal the Crypt Keeper would have called terrific Crypt content.